Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Really happy to say we can start the week with Lisa Shallard and Morgan Stanley, Wealth Management, the Chief Investment Officer. Lisa, you and I have gone back and forth over the last couple of weeks. Help us understand the cyclical trade and how you think that's going to evolve in the coming months. Uh, yeah, great. Good morning, Jonathan. Um, look, our perspective is that uh, you know folks have really looked at the cyclical trade and are waiting to see the inflation expectations data signal that reflation in the economy has begun. And we've really seen, you know, the cyclicals defensive ratio track inflation expectations. Uh, To your point, I think this news, um, you know, coming out of the Fed and, you know, the market's reaction to it, meaning they are believing uh, Chairman Powell for for what he is saying, uh, is ultimately going to be a positive catalyst in that regard and start firming up those inflation expectations. Um, I think when you go to full-on debt monetization, which is really, I think, where we are, uh, that's the point at which uh, it becomes very clear You know what the Fed is doing. They're debasing the U.S. dollar. They're pushing down uh, you know, real rates um, and ultimately the U.S. dollar has to roll over. And the rollover of that U.S. dollar from what has been, uh, you know, just extraordinary heights on a, on a trade-weighted basis uh, is going to be the, one of the things that tr- triggers um, a return of, of a little bit of inflation. And that's all you need here to get those cyclicals going. Lisa, what's the dollar going to be debased against? What currency is actually going to gain press uh, prominence versus the greenback? Uh so our perspective is that uh, most, uh, and what I mean by that is, remember that at the end of the day, uh, you know, currencies move uh, in, re- in relation to relative uh, yield advantages and relative growth. Uh, and while for a good portion of the last three or four years, the U.S. really had a real yield advantage and a real growth advantage, um, what coronavirus has done is kind of level the playing field quite a bit. And what we've seen in the near term is simply a, an extension of the fear trade uh, that's really holding the dollar up in our humble opinion. Uh, because when you look underneath the surface, the relative growth of the U.S. economy uh, is really not that much better uh, than what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, and real rates are really starting to come down. Lisa, I want you to give me the real scoop. You're in wealth management. You're legendary in the street. You've seen the up and down. You've seen how many, how many once in a lifetime crises, Lisa, have you and I had combined? Oh, over the really? list? You know, two, three. They're, there, they're getting more frequent. There's no, there's yeah, no fingers many. left over, folks. Lisa, the, exactly. the textbook says, you know, you walk into a Morgan Stanley office, you're supposed to go, there's a 60-30 split, 60% stocks, 30% bonds and 10% cash because that's what you're supposed to do. Baloney. What's the actual split right now? Oh, goodness. So, uh, you know, look, the vast majority of our clients uh, are extraordinarily conservative and, and have been, you know, quote unquote, hoarding cash. And, you know, as is often the case, and, and we know this from behavioral finance, it, it's a playbook, you know, played out to a T. Uh, you know, a lot of clients, uh, unfortunately, you know, sold badly. They they gave in to fear. 
uh, and throughout the February March timeframe built their cash balances, you know, up to to two times normal. So you you talk about the ten percent. Uh, being an average, you know, we're running closer to, to two times that at, at about 20% cash. John, I just want to say it's it's early in the week, and that's already the phrase of the week. That defines my investment past, John. Do you feel I good that so badly. many people have shared your cash allocation, Tom? I, I sold <laughs> badly. <laughs> Lisa, let's talk about how this evolves, because you've said that we could see some inflation, and maybe that will move things along. We're about to see some real sequential month-on-month improvement in the next couple of months. We'll get the PMIs later this week. May should be better than April. June should be better than May. Does that help get it done, or is that just already widely expected? Well, I think the the piece that isn't expected is that what we're going to see is a lot of lumpiness uh, between supply and demand. Because don't forget, what we did is we, you know, sudden stop uh, turned off the economy. And so the supply chains, are imbalanced. Uh, and so while the market is universally uh, discounting uh, the, you know, the uh, demand side of things, they're not really thinking about the supply side of things. And the supply side of things, in many cases, is going to be delayed. And it's that delay and mismatch in the supply chains that could cause, um, you know, some price inflation to creep in as people are willing to, quote unquote, pay up uh, to fill, refill their shelves. And, uh, you know, I do think we are going to begin to see a pickup on it, it, in some of those metrics around prices paid, wages paid, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, particularly among small businesses. So just real quick here, Lisa, what do you think it will take to shift the current mood that policy trumps the fundamental economic data? Is there anything that could come out, whether it's rising trade tensions or anything else, to reverse the shift? Uh, you mean reverse a reflationary yes. trade? Yes. Um, so look, <laughs> there there are obviously a host of things, um, and not the least of which is the virus itself. Look, right now um, we are seeing, um, you know, clearly nationwide curve flattening, uh, and that has been uh, definitely something that the market uh, understands and is embracing. Uh, and I think if we were to have any major setbacks on that, the you know the narrative is, is still extraordinarily vulnerable uh, to that. Obviously, uh, now is not the time for us to see uh, a pickup in trade tensions, nor is it, quite frankly, a time for us to see a pick a, a pickup in political partisanship. Um, you know, one of the things that we need to to remember is that that the major provisions of the CARES Act. Uh, that we've been talking about as, quote-unquote, you know, monstrous stimulus, it begin to expire in the, you know, June, July, uh, September timeframe. We're going to need some extensions, and we're going to need some cooperation between here and probably July, August, before we get into the, the peak of the political presidential campaigning. Uh, and if we have stumbles and it looks like Washington's becoming dysfunctional, uh, the market's really not going to like that either. So those would be the three that, that we're looking at. Lisa, brilliant to catch up with you, as always. Lisa Shannon there, Morgan Stanley, Wealth Management Chief Investment Officer. I want to go there with Ian Shepherdson, but you bring up something, John, we can't let slip by. Mr. Haldane is respected, and he moves sterling 
explain this to our American audience, who Andy Haldane is and why when he talks about negative rates, it matters. The chief economist of the Bank of England, a key figure over at the BOE, Tom, largely considered to be the guy that has the blue sky thinking about what to do with monetary policy. So it's yeah. not unusual for me that it was Andy Haldane that was the guy that came Correct. out and said, I'm thinking about negative yeah. interest rates. Yeah. We're thinking about it. Those, still, to me, I don't see the core of the MPC coming along with this just yet. Yeah. Well, there it is. And we'll continue to follow that as well. As John mentions, on oil up and other things up, all this weekend, there was glide paths and cute little charts beginning to show recovery or attempting to guesstimate their recovery. Ian Shepherdson is expert at discerning this. He's with Pantheon, as I've said many times. They are leading on LinkedIn with the best in charts that you can see out on LinkedIn and, of course, their services as well. Ian Shepherdson, there, I guess, is going to be a recovery and it's going to be modeled and the most high frequency of high frequency recovery data will be claims this Thursday. Are we actually going to see a trend of lower weekly jobless claims? Yeah, we're already there. I mean, the numbers are still horrendous, obviously, but, um, but the trend is decaying by, well, 10, 12 percent a week. So I'm hoping this week we might print something like 2.5 million, so down from almost 3 million last week. And yeah. Obviously, the peak was nearly 7 million. So definitely heading in the right direction. We've seen week after week of, of uh, incremental declines, but obviously still far too high. I mean, the very worst week after the crash in 2008 was 665,000. And here we are today saying, well, 2.5 million, that's an improvement. So, you know, all things in, in context here, it's still terrible. Ian, a lot of people have been talking about an unprecedented policy response, and a lot of the people who've gotten laid off have been receiving unemployment benefits. There's a question of how big of an additional stimulus package or rescue uh, financing package the market is currently pricing in. What is expected? What is likely, given that $3 trillion plan that Nancy Pelosi got passed in the House but is likely dead on arrival in Senate? Yes, I mean, every, everyone knows there's no chance of a $3 trillion package. Uh, it'll be somewhere between zero and three. So let's do some complicated math and <laughs> get right. one and a half. <laughs> so uh, timing is, of, of course, everything. I think markets expect that, um, that a deal will be done over the next few weeks. I think most people are kind of looking through the posturing on the Republican side in the Senate. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're talking to their base at the moment when they're saying they want to pause and wait and see and be cautious, all this stuff. But the fact is, there's an election coming up, and I don't think these guys can go back to their constituents and say, hey, we voted against that rescue package, and yeah, unemployment's still 20%, but vote for me. I mean, that just seems implausible to me. And I think markets believe that's implausible as well. So, yes, a lot of posturing, a lot of grandstanding. Uh, there's no chance that, that that whole Democrat wish list will get past the Senate. But I think support for state and local government will, substantial. Their revenues have collapsed and they're spending a shot up. They have to be supported. And probably we'll see an extension of the enhanced unemployment benefits beyond July as well, plus extra money for health care and some other things. But, but, um, but a substantial package, and it will bring the total amount of support probably uh, in excess of $4 trillion, so, which is kind of the order of magnitude that I think is, is needed. So getting, getting to the right place eventually. Absolutely incredible numbers. A little bit later this hour, in fact, in around about 10 minutes, we'll catch up with Peter Hayes of BlackRock on state finances. And I think there's a real worry that we could get some state level austerity over the next couple of years. Is that something you've considered? Well, it will happen if they're not supported. I mean, that, that's the point, that, that it is insane to be 
using the power of the federal government while at the same time um, uh, putting states into a position where their lack of support means that they have to cut back on services and raise taxes. I mean, that's completely the wrong thing to do at this point. And again, there's political posturing from the Republican side here, you know, arguing that Democrat states shouldn't be bailed out because they've got big pension deficits, but that's conflating two entirely separate uh, issues. I mean, the, the fundamental fact is that everywhere revenues have collapsed and everywhere spending has gone up. And the only other fact is that the, the large Democrat states are the biggest net givers to the federal government under normal circumstances. So it just makes no sense to argue that they shouldn't receive federal largesse now, and, and they will. It's, it's, it's in no one's interest to put states into a position where they have to tighten fiscal policy. I, I can't think of anything more mad. Ian Shepherdson, open question. What are you most focused on within the equation? I mean, what's the th- you're writing for Pantheon. You go down the left column, you go down the right column. What's the part of the, the GDP equation that matters to you right now? The, the big one is the return of consumption or, or, or the speed of the return of consumption. The speed. Maybe 70% of GDP. Yeah. It, it's, the, it's the momentum in consumption, which I think varies depending where you look. So you know, we're clearly seeing an uptick in the states that have opened up. We get daily data on restaurants and, and air travel, and that's moving in the right direction. But the really big ones, is, it's a discretionary consumer spending. It's what's going to happen to the auto market and the housing market. Uh, and, the, and consumer spending on, on durable goods, you know, as people are allowed to go back into retail stores, they haven't spent for the last couple of months. Are they going to go crazy or are they going to remain cautious? And we just don't know. We've got no history that looks anything like this. So we're all in the dark. But I'm quite encouraged by the pickup in, in, in restaurant spending and the pickup in air travel. It's down. Restaurant, air, air travel is down 90 percent compared to a year ago. But but it was down 97 percent. So there's been an incremental movement in the right direction. And to me, that suggests People, given the opportunity, um, are keen to get back out and, and resume something like normal lives. And that's what has to happen yeah. if the economy is to recover. Well, initially, what we'll see is the sequential improvement. Then we have to talk about the limits of the recovery. And that's when the science really comes into it. Some good news just crossed in the Bloomberg from Moderna. Uh, experimental vaccine from the company showing promising early signs that it could create an immune system response in the body that could help fend off the coronavirus. This according to sampling of data from a small first human trial of the inoculation. So this is early days, very early days, but promising nevertheless. And Ian, I just wonder from your perspective how you would have to remodel the trajectory of the recovery if science can do its part and do its part a whole lot quicker. Yeah, well, my base case has always been that there would be a vaccine uh, available by the end of the year in, in limited quantities, you know, for healthcare workers and, and vulnerable people, and that it would be available in, in, in substantial quantities uh, next spring. Now, if we could bring those numbers forward just by a couple of months, that would make an enormous difference to the trajectory for growth. So I'm, I'm very encouraged by that Moderna headline, but they're not the only one, of course, you know, and there's still that the Oxford group in the UK that reckons they'll have a vaccine available in, in commercial quantities as soon as September. Well, you know, I believe that when I see it, but the fact is that we're throwing globally more resources at this vaccine in different places and different methodologies than we've ever seen before, any, anything like it. So with a bit of luck, one of them will, will come up with the goods. Uh, and I think markets are pricing that in as well. I mean, for sure, markets are, the S&P wouldn't be where it is now uh, if, if markets didn't believe that there was going to be a vaccine within a relatively short time frame. But yeah. even just two or three months difference would, would, be, uh, would be a massive deal. Absolutely. It's, I, that's exactly where I wanted to go because we're seeing that uh, equity futures are not up that much on this news, which I thought was surprising, except for, of course, Moderna stock, which is up 16%. But how much is priced in? How much are we priced to perfection, given the expectation of a vaccine in the near term and policy uh, going the right way of the markets? 
Well, you know, policy, Fed policy to me is bang on. I'm happy with that. I, Congress is getting to the right place eventually, <coughs> after, you know, its usual diversions. Um, the progress on, on reducing the rate of spread of the virus is pretty good. Uh, you know, it's, it's mixed, but there's not many states now with, with rampant outbreaks anymore. Uh, so those things are all kind of falling into place. Um, I, I do think that markets are pricing in, fully pricing in a vaccine now. And let's say we were to see some headlines over the next few weeks that a bunch of these these trials had failed. I mean, that would generate yeah. a very rocky yeah. few days for markets. No, no question about that. And I think that tells you that what they're pricing in is is a, a substantial success on the on the vaccine yeah. front before too long. So there is a vulnerability, definitely, if it doesn't happen. Absolutely. John, John, this is too much good news. I mean, sooner than that, we're going to see Newcastle beat the tots. I mean, it's going to be amazing. Well, they've got see. money if this deal goes through. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Ian Shepherdson, thank you so Should much. Should probably explain to our listeners what on earth we're talking about. But, we're talking yeah. about... Everyone knows. Saudi, Saudi, Arabia, Saudi Arabia taking over Newcastle United, which yeah. is Ian Shepherdson's team. You know, I mean, they're going <laughs> to beat Liverpool here within six months. John and I really wanted to do this for ages. Peter Hayes is expert on municipal bonds. He runs the municipal bond shop for Mr. Fink over at BlackRock with decades and decades of experience. Let me start with a general question, Peter. Are municipal bonds a value right now? The price cratered, it's come back, but is it still a value where you can pick up total return? Yeah, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. I would say, yeah, when you look at it, particularly versus other fixed income asset classes, the total return question is a good one. I think that's how you have to think about municipals now. I think they have their position because of the sell-off that we saw in March and because of the lack of, I would call it maybe Fed intervention. To some degree, I don't want to be careful there. They did create the municipal liquidity facility, but they haven't done direct purchases like they have for other asset classes. And because of the credit impact of the economic downturn, munis are lagging on the rebound. So they've done well in recent sessions, months to date. They're up 1.9%. But if you're looking at it from a holistic portfolio standpoint, there is some total return value. And the other thing we think of just long term is just income. I mean, tax is hard to see taxes going down here, given all the fiscal stimulus. Peter, just looking uh, at the landscape here, there's a lot of discussion about a need for rescue financing from Washington, D.C. to bail out a lot of these municipalities. The reason why bonds have sold off so much and yields are is where they are currently. What is required in terms of the total number coming out of Washington to support states' budgets and prevent a a vast uh, rash of of failures uh, on, on the local side? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really tough question, just because even though we see all these attempts at reopening, will they be successful? Will they be reopening at 100%? Will revenues bounce back to where they were pre-COVID? There's all these questions. So suffice to say, the number's a big one. We've seen states already talk about some of the holes and, and their gaps and their, uh, you know, in totality, hundreds of billions of, of dollars. So it is a big number. Uh, they've done a lot in a lot of different formats. And then we saw the bill introduced last week for the $3 trillion number, which a lot of that is geared to towards states and, and cities. Um, I, I think one of the things you said at the end, though, is interesting about, you know, preventing failure. And this is a, an issue, really, of liquidity versus solvency. States and cities can't go bankrupt. Cities technically can in 26 of the 50 states, I think it is. There's some mechanism. It's difficult. 
states cannot. So there's been some rhetoric about potentially some of the weaker pension states uh, defaulting or going bankrupt. There is no mechanism for for that. So I think it really becomes liquidity. How do you solve this liquidity issue, this big shortfall in revenues over a period of time? The municipal liquidity facility that the Fed created is a backstop for that. Should the issuers need it, remember, they have to provide basic services. That's their their sole purpose. And so the intent of the backstop is to help states and cities to to do that. Um, But, you know, longer term, what will the numbers look like in November? Will the economy kind of come roaring back or is it going to be a slow grind forward? And the the slower it is, the longer it is, the bigger that gap is going to be, the more help that will be needed from Washington. But suffice to say, it's hundreds of billions of dollars at this point in time. Peter, I'll say forgive me up front because this is not a direct apples to apples comparison, of course. But in Europe, in the financial debt crisis of 2011-2012, there was a clear divide between core Europe and peripheral Europe. Do you see anything similar emerging just in terms of red states, blue states in the coming years? Uh, So I'd say yes, this is the short answer. And to some degree, I think we already see that. So if you look at what the Fed has done by buying corporates, mortgage-backed securities, treasuries, it makes me wonder to some degree whether one of the reasons they haven't bought munis more directly is it's a big market, bigger than people think, very complex with, depending on how you look at it, 75,000 different issuers, et cetera. So how you go about that is difficult. But I think a big part of the problem is the red versus the blue. When you look at kind of issuance, you look at the coast versus middle America. And I think this is part of the difficulty. You even see the rhetoric around the $3 trillion stimulus package introduced on Friday, it does become a bit of a red state, blue state. And I think that uh, ultimately can be a a bit of an impediment. There's a lot of things that have to take place here. There's sort of infrastructure spending, there's creating jobs, there's helping make up the shortfall in revenues that Lisa had asked about. So there's all these elements that have to get solved. And we do wonder whether the political difficulty of this gets in the way. Uh, We obviously have an election later this year, so we'll see how that turns out. So we, we might not get a lot of these issues resolved in 2020. They might drag on into 2021, depending on what the outcome of the election is and the political landscape looks like. Peter Hayes, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Appreciate your time and your insight on a really important issue. Peter Hayes there of BlackRock. This is our interview of the day on China. Freya Beamish with Pantheon. Freya, let me just start with a basic question. What is the GDP run rate right now of China? Well, at the moment, we're looking at um, a pretty, a, a pretty um, close, actually, to what the... It's hard for me to even say those words. It's, it's pretty close to what the authorities um, have been reporting, um, in, in Q1 at least. Um, so we did see a big, uh, a big drop quarter on quarter, and we saw a big drop um, year over year as well. And the authorities actually um, came close to, to, to coming clean on what that was. I wouldn't get too comfortable with that um uh with that uh position of of kind of telling the truth um because in the in the second half of the year uh the 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 reality is that the the, re- the recovery is likely to to underperform and and coming into the the two sessions um that we have uh we'll have announcements hopefully at the end of this week as to as to what targets might be um coming into that it's it's likely that um, we're going to start to see more flexibility around those those growth targets, um, and that that um, we might even see uh, a two-year target being set. So that's going to make things anyway. Uh, we're not going to see such a strong signal from the Chinese authorities, 
Um, and, and in any case, what we can extrapolate from, uh, even if there is a two-year target, mm-hmm. um, with regards to 2020, um, is probably going to be higher than what um, what we're going to see in reality. So for this year overall, um, the Q1 data was such that it's very hard to see how they could recover um, and get a, a growth of GDP right. this year. So we think actually that we're going to see a contraction um, to the tune of about 2% for this full year. Um, they, they're unlikely to report that, um, as I said, but the, the, <laughs> the reality is that they'll probably... <laughs> They, they, they could actually over-report um, next, so they could actually under-report next year. What's missing yeah. in Chinese GDP is, is volatility. Um, so they could, they could say growth is higher than it actually is in reality this year, and, and next year they would, they would, they would, um, they would under-report. Freya, trying to game out what to believe from China, what not to believe, which data points to take has been uh, something of a cottage industry for a lot of a lot of individuals. I'm wondering, there was a story uh, on the Bloomberg terminals today saying that Chinese oil demand is nearly back to level seen uh, before the national lockdown that Beijing imposed to prevent the outbreak from spreading. I'm trying to understand how important, if this is accurate, how much this is a tell of the economy getting back online versus just the fact that people are using their own cars more than public transportation, for example, simply because they don't want to be in a crowded place? Yeah, there, there could be a bit of that. But looking at the, the uh, industrial production data overall, that in, in total is almost back to Q4 levels. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of this dual track, track recovery. Um, whereby the industrial complex is, is kind of powering back and it really looks like a V-shaped recovery and does seem like it's getting back to kind of Q4 levels rather, rather almost surprisingly. Um, but that's very much supported by uh, the, the fulfillment of previous export orders and also by uh, liquidity provision for inventory build um, in the first part of this quarter. Now, the, the external demand story is very fast going to drop away from the, uh, the support um, from the external demand is, is going to drop away very quickly from, from that story um, as we go further into Q2. And it's, it's, it's a big ask for these state-owned enterprises that are, that are overstretched in terms of, of debt um, to, to continue just pumping out um, production for, uh, to, to, to boost inventory when the outlook is so uncertain. At the moment, we still think there will be a good, strong recovery in, um, in Q3 in the rest of the world, and then China would be able to shift some of that inventory. But at the moment, it's, it's still, things are still very um, uncertain. Trust and transparency two issues that just aren't going anywhere and you're not the only guest that comes on this program who can't trust the data seemingly coming out of China. The government and the trust here in the United States of the Chinese Communist Party has clearly broken down again. I'm not sure if it was ever really built back up. There are questions about transparency all the times, not just from the United States, also from Europe, Australia and elsewhere too. Where is this heading Freya, I'm trying to get my hands around where this is heading. I'm hearing so much from Washington, from Democrats, from Republicans on what they think of this Chinese Communist Party. Words and policy are often two different things. Can you talk to me about where this is heading just in terms of policy? Yeah, well, our our forecasts uh, at the moment are kind of banked on on um, relations between China and the US remain, or I shouldn't say remaining because they're not in a good place at the moment, but um, on the assumption that things have been so bad in the first half of the year that any kind of 
reasonable politician, then we're just hoping that politicians can be reasonable enough, um, wouldn't want to derail uh, the recovery in the second half um, by by kind of throwing a spanner in the works of, of global trade. That's not what we really hear at the moment. Um, but the thing is, at the moment, all, all global economies are in, in a lot of pain. Um, and the best thing to do, or not the best thing in, in a moral sense, but one of the best uh, uh, policy strategies um, in that case is, is from somebody else and to point the finger at somebody else. So it's kind of understandable that at this stage in the game, we would be seeing kind of uncomfortable um, noises coming from, from both sides. Uh, but when the reality of the situation comes through and it, it, there's, the, there's the, the actual prospect of, of a recovery in the second half, it seems unlikely, but I'm willing mm. to well, eat my words, but it seems unlikely that people would want mm-hmm. to derail that um, in the second half. Mm. Freya, thank you. Freya Beamish of Pantheon Macroeconomics. I'm going to cut to the chase. We need to spend every second we can this morning with Joshua Sharstein. He's at Johns Hopkins University's Bloomberg School of Public Health. I should point out that uh, Mr. Bloomberg is founder of Bloomberg LP, this radio and television platform as well, and has been a philanthropist to his Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Sharstein, I thought of you this weekend when I looked down upon Central Park and saw that, yeah, maybe sort of kind of like we were socially distanced, but the truth is uh, there were a lot of people in Central Park. The whole operation here seems to wrap around masks, masks of different shades, masks that are bandanas, masks that are a scarf, masks that are just a hunk of cotton. Maybe there's some medical stuff, and a very few select people have the fancy N95 masks. Give us a clinic now. Are masks, are, are they going to be what gets this nation back to work? I think masks will help a little bit. Um, and I think it's a good idea for people to wear masks. They don't have to be the fancy medical masks. Um, in order to protect other people, what the mask does is block the droplets coming out of somebody's uh, mouth. And because people aren't sure, they may not be aware that they are infectious because the symptoms haven't started yet. It's a good thing to wear a mask to protect other people. But the real thing that uh, protects people is the distance between them, the physical barriers, the six feet, the redoing the schedule so there are not as many people in the office. All of those things are important. The masks are kind of like the icing on the on the cake, so to speak. Joshua, it's good to hear that the masks are an icing on the cake, but the idea here, and you see it in the Washington Post chart of a seven-day moving average, clearly the tone is we're moving to a better place. Where is the place we're moving to? Uh, well, I think it's it's good news, obviously, that there's been a, a little bit of a drift down, um, and I think a lot of people are taking a lot of precautions, which is good, and people have to maintain that. You know, the virus appears to be a little slower to transmit in the heat, so that's a good sign for the time being, but it also means that uh, we could be getting a false sense of security that we're distancing enough, and when the fall hits, it could go right back up again. So I, I think it's still pretty uncertain right now. Uh, Josh, give me a sense of what we know about immunity, right? Do we have a clearer sense now than we did even 10 days ago about how many people are immune? So um, I think that there's a lot of positive signs and some 
more recent positive signs that there is evidence of immunity, but it, the case hasn't been proven. And so um, the positive signs include animal studies where the animals get rechallenged and don't seem to get sick again. Um, the fact that there really aren't compelling stories of um, and, you know, scientific investigations of people who have gotten very sick twice with different strains. Um, so uh, there, I think more evidence will come out. Uh, but we're going in the direction that when people are sick with coronavirus, they may have less of a chance of getting sick for some period of time. And that's good for a lot of different reasons. Now, that's a little bit different from saying we know exactly how to measure that. And so the tests have to be really calibrated with that. Um, so I think we're getting um, a little bit uh, more optimistic that such immunity exists. We will be able to measure it. And that will be good not only for some people's knowledge about whether they're relatively protected, but it'll be good also as a sign for different kinds of therapies. It makes it hopeful that maybe the convalescent serum will provide some protection. And of course, um, with, with, with the fact that immunity does exist, if you know, once we know that for sure, that would be a good sign for a vaccine. Uh, Josh, when do we find out whether contact tracing is really effective in protecting people? Well, we know contact tracing is effective in general. The question that we need to know is whether the United States can launch programs that uh, do it well. And that depends on uh, training. And, you know, the Johns Hopkins training course now has uh, over 150,000 people enrolled, which is great. It's free online. Um, but a lot more is needed because these programs have to be run very well. You have to be able to find contacts quickly. You have to be able to support people in quarantine, get them food if they need it, get them other supplies, move them to a different place if they can't safely quarantine at home. These are the requirements that have been successful when implemented in other places. If we can well, do that well, it'll really matter. Joshua, it's unfair to ask this question, but it's so emergent right now, particularly for the Midwest. I thought I'd ask it. I don't want you to comment directly on the panhandle, but in Texas, where they're really starting to open things up, there seems to be a focus on Amarillo, Texas. Are we going to see a lot more of these? Are, you know, I, I don't like the phrase hot spots, but statistically, are we going to see these flare ups around the country? Unquestionably, uh, we will. And I think particularly as we open up, there are just a lot of risks. And, you know, we saw just one choir practice had like 60 people infected and two died. We're going to see situations where, you know, people who do, may not realize that they're sick or feel mildly ill and don't think in a million years it could be coronavirus go out. They're not wearing masks. They um, get too close to other people. And we're going to find out that it's still a virus well, that has tremendous capacity. <clears throat> Dr. Sharstein, thank you so much. Joshua Sharstein with the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins at University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.